verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that that you would show up, that you would change us by your spirit in your word, God, by your word. And we know that the only way that that happens is if you show up. And so that's what we pray for, God. Would you change us for, for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I have a little scar on my back from when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and it's because of my little brother, Isaac. He, he was about five or six years old, five years apart. Um, we, we like to go on road trips as a family. And so being 10 and, and five... Um, you know, we got along really well on those road trips. Um, but one, one road trip in, in particular, we were going up to Seattle, and we saw, like, the Sequoia National Park, like all the, the huge trees. You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but I was just in a bad mood because in Texas, like, it was still summertime. But you get up to the mountains, it's not summertime. So I packed all shorts and T-shirts. I'm uh, thinking it was hot outside. That's, that's the way to pack. Um, so I'm at the, at the Space Needle gift shop, and I'm buying like a jacket and stuff for, because uh, it's really cold on top of the Space Needle especially. Um, and so I was just in a bad mood. I was like, this isn't my style. Uh, so I felt like I looked a little goofy. Um, and then on top of that, like the only thing in the world that I know of that I'm allergic to are sequoia trees. Um, and so <laughs> the same things that we were just trekking around, you know, I was like rubbing my face on them for whatever reason. So my face broke out and um, we actually brought a pine cone with us from the Sequoia National Tree. So it, was, it would stay there with us the whole time, so my face just never stopped breaking out. Um, 
It was great. Um, <laughs> but so, and we'd been, we had been cooped up in the van for, you know, a few days up, up to this point. And I'm, I'm warm at this point, but I'm still goofy looking. And my dad, he, he tried. Like, he put two TVs in the back of the van with two game systems so that my brother and I didn't have to fight over the games. Uh, like, it was amazing, but we still did. Um, and my brother, poor guy, him too, uh, like, he was having to deal with all of the, you know, fighting and everything, but with a moody preteen brother who, who was breaking out and, and kind of having a hard time. Uh, but so we're doing, like, the normal arguments, like, it's my turn, uh, let me play, don't breathe by me, um, don't look at me, daddy's on my side, um, I will destroy you, you know, all the classics, um, but so on and so forth, until I got so mad, I was like, well, you know what, I undid my seatbelt, and I went up to, like, turn his game off, his PlayStation, um, and I just get this real sudden sharp pain in my back, and I was like, what in the, ah, and I look back, my brother bit me, he bit my back, and it was like a, it was like a perfect fat roll where he could just get, you know, his teeth on it perfectly. It was terrible. Um, but, so I laid there. I'm just on the floor of the van crying. Um, and my dad, he's, he says, Isaac Daniel, why would you do that? Why did you just bite your brother? To which my brother kind of sarcastically said, I, I was hungry. <laughs> and my parents started laughing. And he was laughing, and I'm still crying, and he didn't get in any trouble. It was the worst day of my life. Um, but so my mom, she was like, okay, let me be the rational person here. So she made us switch seats, so I sat in the front for a long time, and uh, she got to play games. But uh, I, I bring up that story because uh, this is exactly, okay, not exactly, this is almost exactly what we see um, in this story with Abram, minus the bite. Although, I mean, I guess... The Bible doesn't not say that anybody got bit. Actually, let's not go there ever. Uh, let's not say that sentence. Um, but there, there's a fight between two people, and they have to separate. Um, and this is important to know because this, this happens to Abram on his journey of faith. Uh, and so this is going to happen to us too. For many of us, it already has happened. Uh, we will experience fighting between us and people we love, and sometimes it'll cause us to have to separate. This isn't the way it should be, but sadly, realistically, it's the way that it is. The question is, what are we supposed to do with it when it happens? In this life of faith, it's hard. Living in close proximity to other sinners is hard. Neighbors are hard to deal with. Spouses are hard to live with. Kids are hard to keep the peace just with each other, let alone you and them. <clears throat> Bosses, coworkers, everybody's hard to listen to. It's hard to live with sinners. When our sin is in close proximity to other sins, bad things happen, and sometimes people have to end their friendships over it. But this is part of the life of faith, and this is really encouraging, I think, for us to hear and to read, <clears throat> because it's the second thing that happens to Abram. Like the first thing is, in this life of faith, you suffer, and then he loses his friend. Like it is a, it's a journey. <clears throat> Suffering, then more suffering. The question is, what are we supposed to do? From Genesis 13, we see that we are to respond to such a thing in three ways. The first is we handle strife with grace. We lift up our eyes. And we worship God. 
We will lose friends because of sin. But we handle strife with undeserved grace. We lift up our eyes to a godly perspective of life. And we worship God with our lives in response to it all. So let's just take a look at the first one. Look at verse 2. Now, we're just going to pause. Have you guys noticed every single, like, one of our verses has started with now the past three weeks? I just think that's crazy. Uh, But now, so now we have to back up and and just remember what's going on. God calls Abram out of his homeland of Ur where he's worshiping the moon gods with his family. um, And God doesn't tell him where he's going. He just says, hey, I'm I'm giving you a place. And he's like, all right, well, here here I am. Here, Here we go. And Abram goes in faith. And then while he's out on this journey in this land, uh, severe famine hits. And instead of trusting God, Abram runs. He runs from God in the promised land where he was supposed to be to go down to Egypt where he sins and sins again um, until finally, by God's grace alone, Pharaoh makes him leave. And and rightfully so, what Abram did uh, was tough. But Abram decides to go back to the place where he first had faith and first built an altar to God. So we're on the outskirts of Egypt. So just in our story, we're on the outskirts of Egypt, leaving where we pick up with now. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Why? Solely because of God's grace. Like, Pharaoh was unrealistically generous to this man, given the circumstances. Abram lied to him, which brought uh, curses and plagues on Pharaoh's entire nation. And Pharaoh, in response gives him gifts, and lets him leave with his wife. That's crazy. Like, that's just God's grace. There's no other way that that happens. Um, And then it continues. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. So he's going back to his first experience with God, with faith in God. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And we know from last week that Abram's returning back to this moment, back to faith in God after a time of sinful rebellion. And he goes back to to call upon the name of the Lord. And up to this point, everything seems fine. Everything's going really well. He's rich. His cousin, or I mean, his his nephew's rich. Everything's going well. Um, But just because he repented and turned back to God doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean that things aren't going to be it doesn't mean that the story gets better. In fact, for Abram, it gets worse. Verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Uh, so both men are rich. And j- this just creates problems. Uh, the great philosopher P. Diddy, um, he once wrote, The more money we come upon, the more problems we see. <laughs> In case you guys were wondering. Uh, But problems such as, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of of Lot's livestock. So everything's going swimmingly, everything's going well, um, until at one point, they're getting so large that quarreling breaks out for some reason, like they're fighting over the land and the animals, probably like, "You're, you're touching my side, or your goat's over here with my stuff. Um, you're breathing my way. <clears throat> and not only this, they're getting so large that the, the, the nations who currently live in these lands, so if you look at the rest of it, uh, at the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So these two groups are potentially getting a little suspicious about this nomadic tent thing going on in the wilderness, getting just super large. They might, if they get big enough, just say, like, 
you know what? Maybe we should go over there and take them out. They're getting a little big. So strife and tension and fighting and arguing break out all because of the stress of this whole situation. And for Abram, like this has to be really frustrating um, because like this is the ne- this is the nephew that you so lovingly adopted into your family after his dad died, your brother. And this is the boy that you've raised as your own who has been with you every step of the way on this journey. And at some point, like he was probably 100%, 100% behind Abram and all that he was in. He's like, yeah, I'm with you. Huh? Let's go do it. And probably the most painful part of it all is that part of God's blessing to make Abram the father of all nations, <clears throat> part of God's blessing is to make Abram the father of all nations, but at this point, the only legitimate heir that Abram has is Lot. But now, some probably some conversations behind closed tent doors. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but they got leaked onto the land about how you, maybe as Abram, you know, like, well, maybe they think that they, that Abram led them out into the middle of nowhere, and then they let him, Abram led them to Egypt, where they almost got killed because of all these things. Maybe, you know, it's kind of like, man, Abram, I don't know about your leadership here. And they aren't wrong. I mean, he did lead them to Egypt. It was, it was a tough time. <clears throat> However, we see that the strife from the herdsmen most likely stemmed from one place in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. The leader and his only heir are most likely just disagreeing with each other on how to move forward. Maybe Lot's like, because he's a younger guy, he's a young punk. You know, he might say, hey, pops, I get you, but we're going to go this way. And at that point, there might have been uh, some quarreling. And then in that Disagreeing happens in the, the followers of those two leaders. So like if, if I see my dad arguing with some, some other kid's dad, I'm automatically not going to like that dad and that kid, right? Like you don't know what's happening, but that's, that's what's happening here. <clears throat> Abram and Lot are stressed out, and they have had strife between them because of it, and it has caused strife between the people that are following them. So now what? What's Abram supposed to do? His faith at this point has brought him to a land that is not his, that has been in a severe famine, and now his own family, his own son, is in strife with him. Just as we should expect suffering, we should expect, we should expect friends to no longer be such. <coughs> Brothers, sisters, moms, dads, best friends of 30 years, stuff will go wrong, and people will disagree in huge ways, and people will be hurt. This is the second issue in faith that Abram has to deal with. We should not be surprised when it happens to us. So, since this is just part of our lives in faith, how should we handle it? Well, uh, Abram handles it in a way that is both good and bad. It's good in that it's a a good and and graceful solution to the issue, um, but it's bad in that it should have never gotten to to this point. Um, If you look, then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're family, man. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram essentially says, like, we've got to stop all this mess. Somebody is going to get hurt or killed for, your, for the sake of your life and my life and, and all of our people's lives, we've got to stop this. Let's split up here. 
And this is a terrible part of the story because this is absolutely not the way that things should be. In the sinful and broken and cursed land, we will fight with friends we know and love, and sometimes it will be our, our fault, sometimes it will be their fault, but strife will arise and contention will brew to the point where just no one is listening anymore. Everyone is justifying and reasoning, and at that point, splitting up is sometimes necessary. But all of this is just grace from Abram. He actually did really well here, despite letting it get to this point. Like, you know how many things he could have brought up? Boy, do you not remember who raised you? Do you not know that God promised all this land to me? Like, wasn't you? Where do you think you got all of your wealth? That's right, you got it from Egypt when I made that big mess up, so you got it all from me, man. You wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for me, but he doesn't defend himself, not once. He appeals to the soft side of Lot by calling him family. And then he just very graciously gives Lot the first choice of all the land to take instead of taking the good parts for himself. Instead of saying, hey, you see the green stuff over there? I'm going to take that. You go that way. We're going to split up this way. He just gives him grace. And since Lot actually responds in the way that he does, we know that Lot was probably just not hearing anything um, before this point either about fixing any of this stuff. Um, And so I think that splitting was actually Abram's last resort. Uh, Like, this is his heir. This is his only heir, after all. But it had to happen because one party wasn't wasn't having any of it. Abram handled the strife with grace, and grace is completely undeserved. About a year ago, we had an incident in Mission Kids. I see some of you guys. It's not a bad thing. Um, But our, our oldest boys class, we call them the Stingrays, um, they were just absolutely terrible. Uh, they were throwing popcorn and veggie straws and napkins all over the floor, and then on top of that, like making the floor sticky because they spilled their water. Um, but Chris, the leader that day, he could have handled the situation with justifiable anger um, and maybe even some wrath. Like, man, no treasure box for you, you jive turkeys. Like, nothing. Um, but by the grace of God, Chris handled it with absolute and undeserved grace. He had the kids sit down. He poured them another cup of water each and had them sit there in silence as he cleaned their mess up for them. Chris got to show and explain to them exactly what Jesus has done for us. And I think this is how you and I should strive to react in our lives to the contention and strife that is sure to arise. When we and a brother or a sister or a best friend or a spouse or the person closest to us are in the middle of an argument or strife or contention, we put the burden on ourselves first to respond in grace first, to give them options of a solution, and to clean up the mess, especially if it's theirs. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection, Outdo one another in showing honor. And 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? How do we handle strife with grace? We outdo one another in showing each other 
undeserved and total grace by laying down our justifications and reasons and we suffer wrong and we suffer a defrauding because if any point we if at any point we try to justify ourselves it's already a defeat in Jesus we do not have to worry about winning so we strive to handle anything that comes up with grace what about you How can you handle strife with grace? In what ways can you suffer wrongdoing and defrauding? It's hard. Sometimes, though, even that person will not accept your grace. Lot doesn't seem to care about Abram's kindness and generosity, and unfortunately, at the point where we reach out in grace and receive nothing in return. The person is not going to listen or deal some kind of grace back to you. Separation is necessary. So we will lose friends at at some point. What do we do at that moment? We lift up our eyes. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What we're seeing from Lot is a horrible attempt at gaining perspective. He lifts up his eyes to see where to go for himself. Instead of thinking first about his old uncle um, who raised him, he's selfishly choosing himself first. And he sees this land that looks green and beautiful like the Garden of Eden, a palm tree paradise, a land where you do not have to live by faith. And he says, well, I'm going to take that one. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself, there's the selfishness, all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. I think it's really cool how this works out because, like the text mentions, that this was a land like Egypt, um, the place where God's people just came out of this moment of like their leader was sinning, and um, and the trip has to the trip that Lot has to take to get down to this valley is actually three thousand feet down. Just as Abram went down to Egypt in sin, Lot goes down to the Jordan Valley in sin. And then not only that, like when you hear of people journeying east, it usually means expulsion. So like in in the Garden of Eden, uh, when sin had come upon, like Adam and Eve both sinned, um, God just expels them from the garden and says, you cannot come back anymore, and he makes them go east. So it's interesting that he goes east. And then he finishes out, Thus they separated from each other. Sin does this. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Um, Now we're supposed to see the contrast in these two men. One is in sin. One is in faith. Lot goes to these cities, which um, has mostly a negative connotation in the Bible. Like the cities were the hub of everything evil and sinful because there was just a massive amount of sinners, evil and Um, and sinful. So the more sinners, the more sin, the worse sin. But uh, one particular city was one of a kind terrible. Verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The word great here literally translates one of a kind. The evil, vile, repulsive, and revolting things that they do in the city are one of a kind evil and we'll get there in Genesis 19, um, but preferably when the kids are not in service. Uh, but if you want to read there on your own, go to Genesis 19 later. Uh, 
But Lot is in sin and thus in a terrible land. And Lot lifted up his eyes for himself to see for himself the land that he's going to take. But Abram has a completely different experience in the lifting of his eyes. First off, God tells him to do it. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. What's happening here? God's pressing Abram to lift his eyes to remember the promise that he made to him in chapter 12. God looks down and he sees all this strife, all this contention, all the fighting happening, and he gives Abram the grace needed to handle it in the first place. And then he comes down to lift Abram's eyes to what really matters, to give him a godly perspective, to remind him of the promise. And not only that, like he expands the promise, he gives it new and fresh vocabulary so that Abram can just be mind blown yet again by this promise. He tells him, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, I can't even count the dust bunnies I have in a corner of my house. I don't know how, um, even like my ceiling fan, that would be just terrible. Um, and Abram's residing in like a desert type land. I, this just, that's mind blowing. Um, and then God says, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. What's he saying? He's saying, get away from the mess. Take a walk. And as you walk, remember that the very ground you are walking on will one day be yours. Enjoy it. Appreciate it. Appreciate the gift that I am giving to you. Remember the promise and think about the joy that you will one day have because of the fulfillment of this promise. I think this is a good and godly thing to do in any case, but I think especially when arguing and strife arises, take a walk, lift up our eyes, and remember the promise. Uh, and I, I actually needed to hear this when I was preparing this week because I have a tendency to focus like on the... Um, I have the tendency to have the smallest focus in the world, um, and so I absolutely just hate getting bogged down into all the tiny details of stuff. So like, tell me about a building you want to build. I'm, I'm all about it. I'm like, yeah, sure. But if you tell me about the math and the uh, materials of it all, I, I want to cry. But... This plays out in my marriage uh, pretty poorly for the most part. Um, For example, one day, Leah and I were in an argument over something just really silly. And the argument had gotten to the point where it was just, you know, not very good. Um, And Leah said something along the lines of, well, you never do the dishes on a Thursday morning. Um, So you can see it was was one of those serious fights, obviously. Um, But I got so wrapped up in this small little detail. I was like, did you really just say that to me? Like, I'm so offended right now, um, and I just, I pulled out all the stuff. I, I made it my goal. I'm like, I'm going to refute that fact. I'm going to tell you about all the times I've actually done dishes on a Thursday morning. Um, I just got upset that somebody would accuse me of such a thing. Um, but on this day, Leah said, Jake, I need some space right now. Please go take a walk or something. So I, I stomped out the door, and uh, I just walked along the street. I was kicking rocks, you know, like E.T., um, but you know what happened, literally? Like, I, I started walking out, I was just like, oh, clouds are pretty. Oh, man, there's like a storm rolling in over here. Man, this is really pretty. And I kid you not, it just gave me a whole bunch of perspective. It, it made me, I don't know how this works, but like a mind zoom out of, hey, 
you're focusing on something really small in this moment. But after, after some time, just looking around, I had some actual rational thoughts and gained some perspective. And I had the thought, like, man, I'm, I'm going to have to get over that little small thing. Taking a walk outside literally gave me perspective. And I don't think that was a one-off thing. Like, I think that works. When we are surrounded with something that is bigger than us, when we are reminded of the grandness and the bigness of God, I think that it helps us to be reminded of the promise of the one day. It's why we stand in awe of the oceans or the mountains or the, the woods or the stars or those storm clouds rolling in. When God lifts up our eyes, we gain a heavenly perspective and a remembrance of the promise and we can do nothing but stand there in awe. God lifted up Abram's eyes to remind him of the promise. So what are some promises that you forget really quickly? How can you work in time for, for a walk in your day just to be reminded? Just to take a look at the clouds. But the story doesn't end there. This walk did something in Abram that we have to take note of. And this is point three. We worship God. Take a look at verse 18. So, because of this walk that, that God just had him go on, Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What's he doing? <clears throat> the same thing he did the first time God reminded, of him, God reminded him of his promise. He worships. And he does it by building an altar. An altar usually represented a person's desire to consecrate themselves fully to the Lord. So God worked in a person's life in such a way that they wanted to create something tangible like a, a stone or they built something so that every time they walked past that mug, they would be reminded and like, okay, I, I remember that God moved here. It was an offering <clears throat> or, and sometimes an offering was made at the altar um, to say, in essence, I surrender this life that you have given to me. Here is my sacrifice back to you to say thank you. It was a moment of sanctuary for the person at the altar, a moment of pure bliss, a moment of picturing the perfection of the fulfilling of the promise. At the altar, the mess and the struggles and the sin and the strife and the fighting was laid down for the more important remembrance of what is to come. Abram knew because he was reminded that one day, he would be in the land where they could grow and grow as a population and not worry about the land not being able to hold them or being worried about the other nations that were worried about them growing too much one day. And so he worshiped God. That was his only response in that moment. He was reminded of the promise and he laid down his life yet again before God. And this is what worship should be for us. True worship is valuing and treasuring God above all things. One day, Jesus had just gotten done laying into some Pharisees about um, just how they were acting at a heart level. Um, and for some reason after this, like one of them invites Jesus over, over for dinner. He's like, hey, I know you just got really mad at me and, and said some, some mean things about my heart. But hey, you want to come over for dinner? It's really kind of interesting. Um, like he just forgot that Jesus called them snakes or something. Uh, but so Jesus goes and he's at the table. He's reclining. He's relaxing, just having a good old time. Uh, when all of a sudden, a woman of the city, and remember, remember the way that the Bible describes people uh, of cities or describes cities. She comes up to Jesus, and, and this, is how, this, is how the way, this is the way the text describes her. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him first. She's a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Jesus answering said to him, like the guy said it in his head, remember. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. True worship is a valuing or a treasuring God above all things. And this is what Abram does here. And this is what you and I should do in the midst of something like this as well. What does it look like for us today, though? Today we worship lots of things and and have uh, lots of things that we treasure. So how do we worship? Do we build an altar? Maybe. That might be kind of cool. But Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or friends, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This means that Sunday mornings are not just for going to church. We gather together to let the word of God dwell richly in us through all of the singing and preaching and praying. We gather together to be ministered by the various gifts in the body. We gather together from places of joy, sorrow, health, suffering, strife, and contention to encourage each other to cling to Christ. God has given us the gift of worship every Sunday as a way to lift up our eyes, to remind us and even each other to keep our eyes on Jesus so that we can fight the fight of faith for another week. It's a war zone, not a social club. And we've been calling Abram's journey like so far as like his journey or his life of faith, but um, I think we're just gonna call it his fight of faith now. I feel like that's more appropriate because it's a fight. And you and I, we may come in staggering with a barely lit flame of faith. Oftentimes we leave held up by the grace of God working through another brother or sister, flame fanned, heart full, ready and willing to serve Christ. It's a war zone to fight the sin and despair in our hearts. And the enemy would love to use that to undo us, our friendships, our relationships, Worship is not a place to make us feel a little better about ourselves or to check off a to-do list. It is a lifeline to gather strength from God's people to keep pursuing Jesus no matter our circumstances. 
because this has got to be the hardest time in Abram's life so far. God's promise is, I will give this to your offspring. He now has no heir, no offspring to give it to. There's a reason God had to lift up his eyes. You can imagine just the weight So how can you worship today? In what ways can you praise God in response to his work to remind you of the promise today? Because it's true that in this fight of faith, we're going to see strife. We will sometimes handle it with grace, and even then we could lose it all. We will need God to lift up our face and our eyes to a godly perspective. We will need God to show up and remind us of the promise But just look at the best part of this whole thing. Look at verse 14. Yet again, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God does the work it takes to bring us to faith. God does the work to remind us of the promise of that whole thing. And God does the work to keep us and sustain us until the promise has come to bear. God will. We absolutely need this. Because you and I know exactly why Abram needed God to do the work. This fight of faith will at times crumple us to the floor. We will need God to show up because of our complete and utter lack of ability to remember the promise and our complete and utter lack of ability to remind ourselves of the promise. And friends are going to leave. We will lose friends, sometimes to death, sometimes to just weird circumstances, sometimes because you both sinned against each other. But God steps into the story because Abram couldn't do it. And God steps into our story because we absolutely could not do it. The only reason we stand today is by God's good grace to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our example. Jesus had friends who left him. Friends that he spent every day for three years with. Acted like they did not even know who he was. And he acted with grace toward them, even though they did not deserve it. Jesus remembered the promise and went forward in faith to his death. Jesus presented himself as the sacrifice, as the spotless and without blemish sacrifice for our sins. On our behalf, he laid down his life. Because of Jesus, we will one day be in the land that we will inherit because of Jesus. And just like in verse 15, we are the offspring that it will be given to as a gift, not because we earned it, and we get it forever. Literally from the text, forever. It will not end. There will be no end to the perfect land that we will receive as a gift. How is this even possible? Because of Jesus. Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The cross in the most amazing moment in history becomes the ultimate altar. The sanctuary of the believer providing protection from the penalties of sin because of Jesus. So just like Abram did, we're going to worship. We're going to worship God because of this truth because of his lifting up of our eyes, because of his giving us that perspective. Um, so we're going we're gonna to take communion together in worship and praise to the God who does such a thing as this. Um, and if you are a believer in this Jesus, then you are welcome to the table and we'll celebrate together as a family. And we celebrate the fact that Jesus has rescued us from this wilderness to bring us home. And we know that one day, all of these promises will one day come true. If, though, you are not a believer in Jesus, I ask that you remain seated. Because you would be partaking in worshiping the God that is not yours. But let today be the day. This story can be yours. This inheritance can be yours forever. can have your eyes lifted up today by the God who desires to give you the promised land of heaven and you can respond in laying down your life and heart right here right now this gift can be yours do not leave without calling out to God forsaking your own life and saying God I need you let today be the day for all of us though uh, just take some time and do work with God and then when you're ready Uh, We'll get the elements and and we'll bring them back to our seats to take them together. Uh, But let this time be a time where you and I just plead with God to remind us of this sacrifice on our behalf. To lift up our eyes to a heavenly perspective. Let us come to the altar with a deep reverence before the God of the universe. So when you're ready, uh, grab the elements, bring them back to your seat. But here is our prayer. Sorry. Uh, Father, lift up my eyes today to remind me of the one day that is coming. Let that truth give me the grace I need to respond in grace to others and to worship you in spirit and in truth.